mornings, you think you could just get up and pronounce the benediction and we could go home. Thank you, uh, Nathan and Jeremy, for leading us into the uh, presence of the Lord and drawing out our hearts in, in worship. But we will continue to worship as we look at uh, the scriptures. And before we do that, let's ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this one that we've just been singing and this one that we're going to be focusing upon. Uh, Jesus, uh, your Son, the one who is the Savior. Indeed, there is no other higher name than his. That he is the exalted one, that he is the majestic one, that he is the one who is to be the objects of our worship and the one who is to be the recipient and the center of our affections. Well, that's our heart's desire this morning as your people, those who have been bought with the precious blood of, of Jesus. And we will pray that by your spirit this morning, as we now turn our attention to your word, that you would enable us uh, to understand, that you'd enable us to receive that which your word has for us. Father, thank you for this country and this freedom that we have to assemble in this way. And we pray, Father, for things going on in the world today, and there's a special sense of the need of your presence and your direction and your wisdom. That, Father, in all things, in the uncertainty and the crises, that we appeal to you as the God who is sovereign, as the one who is Lord, the one who is greater than all these things, and the one who has his master plan. And we pray, Father, that in all things, that your purposes would be accomplished. And so we trust you in the midst of the concerns and the uncertainties. And Father, we pray for wisdom for those who are the decision makers. Father, we thank you for each one who's here this morning. Thank you for enabling us to be here. Thank you for putting a desire in our heart to be here. And uh, we want to hear from you this morning. So we'll be grateful for that as we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalmist in Psalm 34 and 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And therein he sets forth the reality that our God is great. And because God is great, he therefore needs to be the object of our, our, our worship. It, it's that vision of a great God and a great Savior and a great salvation that comes before us in our uh, passage that we're going to look at this morning. That's which captivates, that's the, the focus that captivates the writer of the book of Hebrews. That God is great. His salvation is great. His son is great. And some of the original recipients of this grand epistle had not fully grasped the greatness of who this savior really is. They had not fully grasped the significance of the great salvation that he provided. And so the writer takes up as his mandate the challenge to prove any, beyond any shadow of a doubt that this Jesus, God's Son, is supreme. That this Jesus is like no one else. That he has no equal, that he has no close second, that he is unique. When it comes to horse racing, we all love to see the photo finish. But the winning horse just crosses the line and wins by a nose. The writer to Hebrews, he lets us know that when it comes to Jesus Christ, there'll be no photo finish. He has no close seconds. It's not Muhammad. It's not Gandhi. It's not Buddha. He is unique. 
And this is the vision of Jesus that the writer of Hebrews sets forth to his original audience. Uh, people in his audience who were experiencing the pressures of life, cultural pressures, religious pressures. And this is the vision of Jesus that the writer sets forth that is designed to enable them to remain faithful. Cultural pressures, those who were followers of Jesus were experiencing opposition, were experiencing persecution. They had landed in prison. They were losing everything that they had. Others who were part of the community who would dare to visit them in prison ran the same risk of encountering the same reality. Religiously, there was debate internally as to whether or not Jesus Christ alone was sufficient as our Redeemer, whether Jesus alone was our salvation. They had acknowledged that Jesus was good, but Jesus was not enough, that it's Jesus plus maintaining the Old Testament rituals. And there were those who had declared and had flown their flag that Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation and redemption who were being pressurized to recant and turn back from that and to say that Jesus alone is not sufficient. These were people experiencing incredible pressures. And to those kinds of people, the writer of Hebrews sets forth this treatment concerning who Jesus is. This vision of Jesus, a vision that would sustain them in the midst of the pressure points of life. As we embark on a new year this morning, and as we find ourselves experiencing all kinds of our own pressure points, perhaps you and I also need to be reminded afresh of this vision of who Jesus is. Perhaps for some of us who become so bogged down with work and the stresses of work that can somehow overwhelm us. Maybe finding ourselves in a marriage that is struggling as we feverishly try to make things right and to make things work, this morning the invitation is for us to look heavenward and to look Christward and receive a renewed perspective of the Savior. Perhaps for some of us so burdened for our kids that we wish that they would walk more closely with the Lord. Perhaps for some so burned out in the activities of ministry, the gas tank on empty and the pedal still to the floor. God would say to us this morning, turn aside and see my son. Come delight in him in whom my soul delights. So let's do that as we pick up our text in Hebrews 1 and verses 1 through 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writers he embarks on this major treatise in this epistle, he begins by demonstrating how that Jesus Christ is supreme. He's going to give us a vision that Jesus is supreme in all things. 
And his punchline is simply that the supremacy of Jesus in all things means that he is sufficient for all things. We want to see three major ways in which the writer highlights for us how that God is supreme. And the first comes to us by in the realm of communication, that Jesus is God's supreme communication. This verse opens up, it reminds us that we have a God who delights to communicate, but a God who is not silent. It may be that sometimes we lament and say that if only God would speak and break the silence of heaven and write his message in the sky, it would be so much easier, and somehow therein we we imply that maybe God is withdrawn or uncommunicative. The writer to Hebrews reminds us that our God is very much the opposite, that he is a God who loves to communicate. And he presents to us here in these verses, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, that our God is a God who's committed to communicating constantly and creatively. He presents God's communication as falling really into two major phases. Number one, before the incarnation. We've just come through this Christmas season celebrating the birth of the Savior. Prior to the incarnation, God spoke. That's the first phase that comes before us here. And then the second is through the incarnation itself. God's communication through the coming of Jesus into the world. And what both of these things teaches us is that God is a God who has been committed to communicating constantly. He says before the incarnation, before the birth of Jesus, God communicated to the fathers by the prophets. The normal, typical means that God chose to speak to people, to his people, was through human agents. People that God would lay hold of and would, he would appoint as his messengers Of course, other means were available to God by which he could speak. He could have shouted from the heavens in a way that everyone would have understood and would have heard. He could have written his message in the heavens in a knowable language so that everyone could have read and understood. He could have sent legions of angels to tap everyone on the shoulder and whisper in their ear God's special word for each one. Other means he could have chosen, of course, but he didn't. And that means which he chose to employ was real, live people, people of flesh and blood just like you and me. And it's Moses who introduces us to this office of the, and the ministry of the prophet in his writings in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. And it's there that the Lord sets forth the details of this ministry and the credibility of the one who would be his true messenger. Outlines the stringent requirements, but he underscores that when the prophet speaks, It's not merely the words of the prophet, but actually it is the words of God. And what a collection of prophets are found along the landscape of our Old Testament history. There's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Elisha, there's Micaiah. And then we have more of the written prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Amos, Hosea, just to name a few. When it comes to the communication from God, there's never anything mundane about it. Communication from God was never routine. And so the text reminds us that he spoke at many times, and not only at many times, but but in many ways. When it comes to the way in which God communicates, he has more than one mold. He has more than one die. It's not assembly line communication. Our God is a God who 
communicates constantly, but he's also a God who communicates creatively. Many times, many places, many portions, many ways, all the way from Moses through to John the Baptist. We think we live in an age of great communication and information. I mean, it used to be radio, television, then we had the satellites, then we got internet, we have email, we can sit at our computer, and we not only can talk with people around the world, but we can actually look at them as we talk. Fascinating, isn't it? But when it comes to communication, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God is the great innovator. He is the communicator par excellence. He speaks in a variety of ways through the still, small voice of Elijah. Through creation in Psalm 19, as the heavens declare the glory of God and shouts the message that God is glorious, God is glorious, God is glorious. Sometimes he speaks and communicates through the pictures, like the rainbow with Noah reminds us just to see the rainbow, just to see the image that God will never destroy the world again with a flood. And in history, he has spoken through a group of very diverse prophets, different personalities, different circumstances, different writing styles, but through each one of them, he has spoken. In the burning bush to Moses, through Elijah calling down fire from heaven, through the prophet Nathan as he shakes his bony finger in the face of David and reminds him that he is the one who is guilty of adultery and murder, through Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God, through Hosea as he rescues and purchases his wife out of harlotry in order to demonstrate God's unconditional love for his people. The Old Testament landscape is dotted with these special messengers of God known as the prophets. And as great as God's communication is through the Old Testament prophets, and it is great, our writer reminds us that that's not where God's communication ended. Our text reads, Long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. There's a sense in which our familiarity with the text perhaps makes us callous to really what is being said here. We might be inclined to think if we didn't know how the verse was going to end already, that we might read God in former times spoke through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us through the apostles. That's, of course, what we have in our New Testament, all the epistles written to us by the apostles. God has declared his truth through that means. But that's not the emphasis of the author here. The emphasis of the author is that God has done something radically different in these last days. Communicates by his son. And Jesus is God's supreme communication. Number one, because he is his son. The point of the author is that Jesus is not merely a prophet. Contrary to the teaching of Islam, which affirms that Jesus is only a prophet like an Isaiah or like a Jeremiah or like Moses. But the text here affirms for us that Jesus is is superior to the prophets. And he's superior to the prophets because he is not merely a prophet. That he is the eternally begotten son. 
one who has no beginning and no ending. It's important here to recognize that the very term son is, is actually an affirmation of, of deity. The fact that Jesus is identified here as the son of God sets him forth as being equal with God. Sometimes we think of the term son as, a, as actually a, a term or a designation of inferiority in relation to God the Father, but, but it's not. If I were to have a son, if Lori and I were to have a son, he'd be the son of Dan and Lori DeGear. If someone were to point to them, they would say, that's the son of Dan and Lori. And by virtue of that, they would understand that that son contains the very likeness of Dan and Lori. And when it says that Jesus is the son of God, it means that he is divine like God. That as the son, he bears the likeness of deity because he is deity. And therefore to view him as being merely a prophet like any of the other prophets is to fail to see him for the uniqueness that is his. Something that surely Peter was guilty of in the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And in that moment of excitement when Peter, James, and John have been taken up in the mountain with Jesus, there they see uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus transfigured in his glory. And Peter says, Lord, it's great for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And in that moment, Peter, in his statement, was just putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But Jesus is not just like any other prophet. He is God's supreme communication because he is the Son And not only that, Jesus is God's supreme communication because he is the climax of God's revelation. This is borne out in the phrase, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The last days began with the coming of Jesus into the world. We have been living in the last days ever since the birth of Jesus. In the gospel account, the last days has started. We, you and I today, find ourselves in the last days because the last days began when Jesus came into the world. And the point of the writer of Hebrews is that the word which God spoke by the Son is God's decisive word. It will not be followed in this age by any greater communication or any other replacement word. Jesus is the ultimate word of God, and he is the ultimate word of God. From God. The person of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the work of Jesus, He is the finality of God's communication to us. God is a God of communication. He has spoken constantly throughout history, He has spoken creatively throughout history. And in these last days, He has spoken decisively and climatically in His Son, Jesus. Jesus is God's supreme communication to us. Not only is he supreme because of his final communication from God, but there's two other reasons why Jesus is supreme, and that's what the writer uh, deals with. First two, uh, the the, the points number two and points number three kind of go together. The writer is going to focus on the fact that Jesus is supreme by virtue of his character, and linked closely with that, that Jesus is supreme by virtue of his function, by virtue of his work. 
Let's first of all look at Jesus as supreme in his character. Latter part of the midway through verse 2, he begins this series of descriptions in relation to Christ. He gives sevenfold, a sevenfold list. He says that he is the heir of all things, that he is the creator. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purification of sins. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These are seven great glorious descriptions that set Jesus apart. And you really could have a sevenfold series of messages on one on each one of these. We will only touch on them this morning. But they break down into character and function, I would suggest. First of all, we consider his character. Who is he? He is the one who is heir of all things. He is the one to whom everything and everyone is subject. He is the possessor. He is the owner. Why is he the possessor? Why is the owner? By virtue of the fact that he is the creator. He made it all. Since he made it all, he possesses it all. Then he reminds us that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. These are descriptions that have as their focus the essence of who Christ is, the essence of his character. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who possesses the true nature of God. He is the one who radiates the essence of God's character. These descriptions remind us that if we want to know the beauty of God, the glory of his perfections, then we do so by being occupied with with Christ because he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the essence of who God is. Reminds us of what Christ himself said during his earthly ministry to the disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul writes, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. I, I love the example that our Lord himself gives in Mark's Gospel 11 and 12, in that series of uh, where the religious leaders, the people are trying to box Jesus into a corner and are trying to trap him. And it comes to a great climax when they ask Jesus the question of whether or not people should pay tribute, pay tax to Caesar. Remember what Jesus does there in that context? The broader context is that Jesus has been presenting himself as the one who is deity, the one who is the son of God. Remember he asks for the coin and he takes that denarius and he looks at it and he holds it up for them and he says, whose imprint, whose image does it bear? And they said, Caesar's. That was Caesar's inscription. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then the punchline is render to God the things that are God's. All the way through, Jesus has been standing before them and has been reminding them that he is deity, that he is God manifested in the flesh, that he is the son. And so he says, render, just as this coin bears the image of Caesar, 
So, moi, I bear the image of deity. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to God the things that are God's. And Jesus is supreme in terms of his character by virtue of the fact that he indeed is God manifested in the flesh. Because he's supreme in his character, therefore it enabled him to be supreme in what he did. It qualified him to be supreme in his cross work. And that's the third category that our writer directs our attention to. That Jesus Christ is supreme in his cross work. The evidence that Jesus is supreme in his cross work is the fact that that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 3, there is one main verb that after having made purification for sins, there's one main verb and that is sat down. And there's one main subject, and it's he, he, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the main clause of that verse is he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Everything else in the verse serves to substantiate and to shed light on that one phrase, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. We could translate it like this. He, being the radiance of God's glory, sat down the right hand of the majesty. He, being the exact representation of God's nature, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He, upholding all things by the word of his power, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He, having made purifications of sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. You could take away everything apart from that core, subject, main verb, clause, and you have the gist of what he's emphasizing in this verse, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. The fact that Jesus Christ being seated is his point of emphasis. That Jesus being seated speaks not because of, due to the fact that he is tired or he's weary, but he's underscoring that in his cross work, it is complete. Explicitly makes reference to Christ being seated after he made purification for sins. And that's, of course, a major theme as we go throughout Hebrews. By this one offering of Christ, he has dealt with our sins so decisively, so fully, so finally, that God says we are perfected before him as his followers, that we are forgiven that we are being regarded as righteous before God, not just for a little while, but for all time. His cross work was so perfect. Salvation worked so impeccable. The only way for him to be honored was to be raised from the dead and exalted to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. The significance of Christ being seated is clearly seen within the context of the Old Testament tabernacle and sacrificial system. When we compare the priestly ministry of the Old Testament priests and the priestly ministry of Jesus, the amazing contrast is that Jesus is seated. And that's a contrast that cannot be missed. 
When we study the Old Testament, we observe that there's never any provision for the priest in the Old Testament tabernacle to sit. And the imagery of that truth is that it flows out of the fact that the work was never finished. The priest never got to sit down because the work was never completed. There was always another animal to be slain. There was always another offering to be presented before the Lord. But with Christ, there is no other sacrifice to be made. There is no other offering for sin to be presented. But Christ has done it all. And in his cross work, he has functioned both as the priest and the priestly sacrifice. He's been slain once and for all. And in that exclamation of triumph on the cross, it's Jesus who says, it is finished. And in his own sacrifice, he perfectly accomplished purification of sins. And because of that, he's now seated at the right hand of majesty. A.W. Tozer, in speaking about the incarnation, liked to say that there's a man in the heavens. Jesus did not cease to be what he always was by that which he became. He is God, but he is man, and there's a man man in the heavens. I'd like to add to that by saying not only is there a man in the heavens, but there's a man seated in the heavens. And Christ is now seated, and he will remain seated, his word tells us, until his enemies be made his footstool referring to that great day that God has appointed for Christ to be seen as being heir of all. And praise God, we're going to see that, and we're going to witness it all, and we're going to be there to see it joyfully because Jesus Christ has completed the work. He's made purification for our sins. We also know that we're going to be there to see it all because Christ continues to preserve us. As we see in this phrase, he's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. It reminds us that not only are we dependent upon him for our forgiveness of our sins, but we're dependent upon him for our daily moment-by-moment existence. If Christ could simply speak the word, we would pass out of existence. We're dependent upon Christ for our salvation. We're dependent upon Christ for our very being. We owe him absolutely everything that we, that we have. It's a great salvation if we know Jesus as our Savior. To these people experiencing these huge pressure points in life, being called upon even to lay down their life and to suffer enormously, what is it that can sustain and keep them? And this writer understood that the vision that sustains is a vision of the supremacy of Jesus. In the midst of our world's and all our pressure points this morning. What is it that sustains us? And he brings us right back to the basics, the reality of the supremacy of Jesus, that he is God's supreme communication, that God has done something radically different in him. He has spoken to us in his son, this son who is supreme in his character, and this son who is supreme in his function in his cross work. The question for us this morning is, what then should my response be to this communication of God? If God is the eternal, majestic, awesome God that he claims to be, if God is the God who made me and the God to whom I am accountable to and the one I'm dependent for and upon, 
If this is the God who delights to communicate with me, then what ought my response be to that communication? It seems there's only one logical response. And it's that response that the Father commanded the disciples in Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration that we referenced earlier. When Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build the three tabernacles. God the Father breaks the silence of heaven. And he declares that Jesus is not just one of the prophets. He breaks the silence of heaven and he thunders with those great words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then gives three words. The response for them is the response for us. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so I ask us this morning, are you listening? Am I listening? What does he say? He says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, unless you have the kind of simplistic faith and trust of a child and thrust yourself upon me, you will never make it to the dwelling place of God. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And so we listen. And we come to him for salvation. Have you come to him for salvation? Are you listening? This is my beloved son in whom I am well placed. Listen to him. And then do we listen to him as he instructs us in how we are to live as followers of his? I don't know what your pressure point is this morning. But Jesus says, God's word encourages us this morning. Listen to him. What's he telling you this morning? How's he leading you this morning? How's he nudging you this morning? The encouragement is, listen to him. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, it's his word for us this morning, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? 
with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's what he says to us. Are we listening? Are we listening? Christ's supremacy in all things reminds us that he is the one who is sufficient for all things. And these things that we've been talking about powerfully come together as we come to the table this morning to remember our Lord. These emblems that are before us remind us that, that God has spoken, that God is a communicating God, that God has spoken fully and finally and climactically in Jesus, his son. Jesus is supreme because he is God's ultimate communication. And these emblems remind us, as we take of that which reminds us of his body, reminds us of his character, that he is the one who is the lamb without blemish and without spot, the perfections of his person, because indeed he is God in human flesh. And because of his character, because of his perfection, it enabled him to accomplish salvation for us. Reminds us this morning that the salvation is complete. He is supreme in his cross work. He's seated this morning, the right hand of the majesty. Not another sacrifice to be made. It's done, it's over, it's finished. And we get to enter in to the full benefits of that this morning. So might these thoughts help us as we come to the table and worship, be reminded of our Lord and worship him because of his grace, because of the grandeur of the salvation that he's given to us. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God who delights to communicate. And you have communicated constantly and you've communicated creatively. And you created, communicated climatically in giving us Jesus, your son, that he is a communication like no one else. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your son, into this world. And Father, thank you for the perfections of his person that enabled him to render the kind of sacrifice that could fully atone for our sin. As he shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. And we thank you, Father, that you were pleased with that sacrifice. You raised him from the dead. And this morning... He is seated at your right hand forever. We rejoice in the realities of these truths to us. Make them real to us this morning and we'll worship Jesus, your son, our savior, because of them. In his worthy name, amen.